Welcome to Kilts and Culture with USA Kilts. We're here to talk about all things Highland dress, the cultures and the heritage that created it, and how to enjoy the kilt in the 21st century. From tartan and trues to haggis and history, we cover it all. So sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and enjoy the show. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to Kilts and Culture. I'm Rocky. This is Eric. Yo. Today, special treat. We got a gift from some customers of ours. They traveled all the way from, uh, I think, St. Paul, Minnesota. They drove all the way out here just to come to the shop. Eli and Amber Lyons brought us a some mead from out by them, Four Brothers yep. Mead. So I have yep. Odin's Harafen, and Eric has. Yep. I have the uh, Yggdrasil sap. So. Indeed. So we are going to try both of them live on the show. I have never had mead before, so finger crossed I am not allergic, <laughs> or I don't I don't despise it. So we'll see what happens. Are you are you are you are you allergic to honey or anything? We'll find out. No, you, you should be so. fine. Yeah. The uh, I will I will point out I I don't know if there are um, tasting notes on their website, but there are no tasting notes on this bottle. Um, it is a nice design. I do like their labeling. That's pretty cool. So I'm gonna suggest which do you care which one we do first? No, you tell me which glass I'm supposed to grab. Let's try it. Well, okay, well, let's do the Yggdrasil sap. Okay. That's definitely honey. Hmm. Okay. Tastes like I'm like I'm drinking a liquid cough drop. <laughs> yep. Like I let my hulls, a bag of hulls, sit in the, sit in water overnight. I don't know if you want to do the scotch thing. <laughs> You're aerating your mead. I, I okay. don't know. Um, yeah. Excuse me. Um, very sweet. Very sweet. Um, they do not have an APV. Oh, yes, they do. It's 16% APV. So that's pretty average. That's the, for, for a mead, that's pretty average. Um, and I can feel it. It's definitely, it's the, the, the alcohol is definitely in there. Um, it's, uh, my, I would say from, as a mead drinker, it tastes a little young to me um young like yeah aged. like like some of the some of that that bitter edge there's a slight bitter edge to it it just hasn't aged out quite okay it tastes yeah it's 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 overpowering honey um it i don't know if i get like it if my brain is telling me it's like a weird apple juice i don't know they use uh raw unfiltered local honey um, I think I remember reading on the site that the uh, the mix they get is clover and I forget what else, some alfalfa or something. But it's I'm I'm definitely getting more of a um, a wheat honey flavor, not not as much clover, um, but uh, mostly sweet, a little bit floral, 
Um, just kind of, kind of middle of the road. Mac, what do you think? If Winnie the, if Winnie the Pooh would drink mead, this is it. <laughs> I agree. It, it is very, it is very just straight up kind of feels like a, a kind of a generic honey flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not very strong uh, profile in my opinion. Um, now this is a straight mead as far as I can tell. It has not been flavored with anything. Uh, that is a big deal with meads is actually putting in other flavorings. So um, for a straight mead, it's okay. It's not, doesn't do a lot for me, but it's okay. Okay. I'm going to continue with the Winnie the Pooh references and say it's it's the Eeyore of, okay, I'll have some mead, I guess. <laughs> Mac, one to ten. Uh, I'm going to go four... Point five. I, I'm not. I, this is really the first meat I've had, so that I remember. I know I've had one other one, but okay. this. <laughs> but it was a really good night. <laughs> yeah, I don't really remember okay. it. I remember giving it a sheep later, but I don't remember. Other than that, that's about it. <laughs> the end of the night. Mac is saying things such as "By Odin's Raven." That's a... <laughs> me, Eric. Okay. Your thoughts. Score one to ten. Um, I'll give it a four. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it, I, I appreciate the gift and it is a good flavor. And if I were trying to get somebody started on mead, I might give this as a, this is a basic mead. This is what a mead should taste like. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, again, I have never had mead. Um, if this was my introduction to mead, I would say I would, which it is, <laughs> which it is. Uh, I would say I would probably politely pass on the second glass, and I don't know if I would finish the first. Um, uh, well, you generally don't like sweet stuff, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, well, it, it depends on what the sweet stuff is. Uh, this, I would say, three. It's um, 3.2. It's, yeah. uh, but I don't like mead, so it's that's my disclaimer. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll say one thing. It's possible that we're not giving it a fair shake because we're not drinking it out of the proper vessels. So what I'm going to suggest is that for the next one, which is the, uh, the, the Throffin, I suggest we drink this out of actually some proper, uh, mead drinking vessels. So, uh, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Okay. Mac, what do you got there? I got an incoming call. Hold on. Yes. And Rocky's is bigger, and I just got the dinky one. That's drinking horn? This is a drinking horn. This is actually a reproduction of a 12th century glass Viking drinking horn. Nice. As, as glass became a popular import, they started making horns out of glass. So it is legit. All right. Mac? Eric? Shall we uh, transfer the beverage? Yep. Now, I got to tell you guys one thing before you do this. Make sure that the point of the horn is pointing towards you. Okay? I can't I can't see in my monitor if you got no, other way. Make sure that the point the point to yeah, that's yeah, like that. You want it pointing toward pretty much curving towards you. Otherwise you might get a, a bloop and you might get baptized by the horn, as they say. <laughs> so he gets the one that doesn't do that, Mac. You and I gotta look like fools on camera. Thanks, Eric. I got, I got to have something. Hey, anytime. So, skull. 
We're gonna do a wardrobe change mid-show. Is this like the boot? Yes, it is similar to drinking out of a boot. Hmm. I don't often drink out of boots, but when I do, toe towards you. All right, no, I guess the toe would be away from you, that one. All right, anyway, cheers. Right. Cheers. You sure it's towards and not away? Yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> I've only been drinking out of that particular horn for about 16 years, Rocky. What do I know? <laughs> Remind me not to drink out of horns again. <laughs> You're just doing it for the grams, man. It's okay. Uh, now this is a draw. This is definitely a drier mead. Um, yeah. Yeah. Tastes winier. It tastes more like wine. Um, it's got, it's got, it's still, you can still taste some of the yeast. It's got a yeasty uh, side to it. Um, so again, it, to me, it tastes a little young. Um, I like the fact that we got one of each and I appreciate the fact they gave us one of each because this does show that the, the, some of the scope you can get from meads, you can go from very dry, like a white wine all the way up to like, oh my God, I'm diabetic now, kind of sweetness. Um, <laughs> again, it, this is definitely just a straight mead. It's, it's okay. It's not coming out. <laughs> is there any in there? Well, you, you could you could pour some more, but you know, you can't put the horn down until it's empty. So, you know, it's up to you. Oh, I can put it down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> clean up an aisle four. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's much drier. Um, not nearly as sweet. Um, mm -hmm. Tastes a lot more like a wine. I, I would, if I had my preference, hold on. I was gonna say, it almost feels like they could be mixed together to make it a, a little balanced, yeah. How do you have a swirl of horn? Is that proper? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't, there's no lore about that. I can't tell you for sure. No, it's worse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've changed my score now, but. Um, all right, Mr. Mack. Thoughts? Four brothers mean. I'm not a wine person in general, so th it, this really goes the opposite direction for me. So I, I'm, I, I got to give it like a 1.2. I'm just not a <laughs> wine person. I'll drink the right. other one all day. Right. This one, not so much. Yeah. Hmm. Score, one to 10. Three. Okay. Um, yeah, this tastes more to me like wine than the first. Um, I don't like wine. Um, apparently, I don't like meat either. <laughs> so, I'd say. I, let me. Yeah. I, I, the, the thing about the thing about mead is is there's a lot of people making it now, and there's there's a headlong rush. It's kind of like the artisanal beer scene. Um, my favorite brand is one from Delaware called uh, Brimminghorn. And uh, I would highly recommend that uh, if people want to get into mead, you try some from different companies and do a comparison. Um, the smaller the outfit, usually the better. Um, yeah, I'm actually, um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed. Sorry to say, but um, compared to what I'm used to drinking, this is kind of meh, you know, not, not gonna lie. Yeah, it's, I would say since I'm not a 
wine fan and I'm not, never had mead before, and I'm, I'm now not a fan of mead, although if Eric is saying that you know, this is meh compared to another one which he thinks is great, I would potentially give it another shot, but I wouldn't be like lining up outside the mead store for the latest mead. Um, 2.2, it's, yeah, I wouldn't, I'm not a mead guy. So, we appreciate the gift, but with everything that we do, we want to be 100% honest. I'm not gonna blow smoke and say, oh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, it's, you know, Eli and, uh, uh, and Amber said, you know, look, review it on the show. We don't care, give it an honest score. That's why we're giving it an honest score. So for me, 2.2 and three and change, whatever I gave the other one. Yeah. So yeah, that's about it. Um, I, I highly recommend checking out Brimminghorn and, and another one is uh, Stonekeep, which is local to us who are really, really good. Those two, I would, I would absolutely. I, I kind of wish I had one of those to share with you guys to, for comparison. Um, Rocky, if you want to, you know, pay for it, I can hook you up. I'll, I'll get right on it. Please, Rocky, buy things yeah. you hate. Sure, why not? <laughs> I'm made of money. But I'm no, my, my point is there, there is there there is a lot of great meat out there. Um, uh, better companies will offer more variety of flavors. Um, basically, there's two types of mead. Methaglens and um, Malamels. Malamel is basically with fruit flavoring, Methaglen is with spices and herbs. Um, these seem to both be just straight meads, which is basically it's the honey and you're relying on the, um, the esters from the honey itself to give it the flavor, which is fine. Um, uh, I just don't I just don't think they're, they're doing much for me okay. in this particular case. I'd love to end the segment. Mac and Eric, charge your glasses. Skull. Skull. All right. Now, I will lay down my horn and. Uh, I give you a stand, right? No, it's 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 wonderful you. that they uh, they thought of us and thought to give us gifts um, of the mead. I wish I would have liked it more, but as I said, we're we want to be honest with you know what we do. To be fair, I'll finish them. Yeah. It's just not, yeah, it's just not, <clears throat> and I not will, what I'm used to. And I will try another a little drinky poo that I that I tend to like. Scotch. Alright, so should we dive into some questions then? Let us begin. Boys and girls, put your comments in the uh, put your questions in the comment section. As per norm, Eric and I will answer them as honestly and straightforwardly as possible with our wonderful opinions, of which we have many. <laughs> uh, I think I think uh, the first question I'm gonna give you will give you an op opportunity to give opinions and also some factual information, which is always a good mix, right? So, um, Lucas Smales uh, was very kind and kind of as an offhand compliment, he thinks we could do this. Uh, he asked, would USA Kilts slash kilts and culture ever consider hosting a highland games or a celtic festival and lucas thank you for the vote of confidence uh in, in that's in the written into that question but uh what goes into putting on a celtic festival rocky sure um <clears throat> we actually did do a, not a highland games but we did do a celtic festival back when uh 2008 9 10 i think that, that kind of time frame usa kilts used to run a celtic festival at our previous location down in phoenixville it, it was an eye-opening experience to say the least. It is much, much more complicated than 
most people think running a festival. There are a lot of moving parts and a lot of things you don't think about that you have to get done. Um, it's not just, you know, build it and they will come. There's a lot to it. You have, you know, first starting with the township, you have to get the permit. Are you allowed to do it? Um, find a location for it, figure out the parking situation for the location. You have to line up the vendors, get in contact with the vendors, line them up, figure out what those costs are going to be. You have to have insurance for the festival. If you do a Highland Games, like the actual events, that is going to be another level of insurance that you have to have. Then you deal with the music aspect of it. So you have bands, you have to deal with their contracts, their riders, you have to figure out the pricing of the bands and all that kind of stuff. You have to figure out the marketing to it. You have to figure out, you know, uh, sponsorship of it. When we did the festival, the Phoenixville Celtic Festival, as it was called, um, we partnered with a gent named Bill Reed, wonderful individual. He owns East of the Hebrides Entertainment. And he ended up doing the logistical part of the bands, of the, uh, the vendors and that kind of stuff. And then we took on the mantle of the township, of the sponsorship, of those kind of things. And it was an ungodly amount of work for very, very little money. So my, my takeaway from all of it was I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad we were able to do that for Phoenixville. I'm glad we were able to do it for the small businesses downtown in Phoenixville because they had a great day. I'm glad we were able to do it as a free festival for people to be able to come to and enjoy. It was a good experience and we did it for three or four years, but it was a lot of work, a lot more than I originally thought it was going to be. So if I could, if I knew at the beginning what it was going to take to run the whole thing, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but it is, it was a, a labor of love. It is a passion project. You don't run festivals because, or, or volunteer for festival boards because you're trying to get rich. You do it because you love the culture. You do it because you want to have others experience the music, as well as the games, as well as the camaraderie, as well as the food and all the different things that go into a successful festival. That is the reason you're doing it is to bring other people joy and to bring other people that experience that they wouldn't otherwise have unless people like you, people like us or whoever did the whole thing. Um, but as I said, it is a lot of work. So ultimately my, my, my lesson in all this, my, my, my pat on the back, is to the people who put on the festivals. When you go to a festival, there is a lot of work behind the scenes. There are a lot of volunteers and volunteers, not paid people, volunteers to make it work. And so when you go to the festival, realize that it's not just the fun stuff that, that is the day, but the people who put it on, you have to appreciate them and their effort. I'll say sacrifice, because you're sacrificing your time with your family, with you know other hobbies, um, but it is all in, in all of this stuff. It is a passion project. It is for the love of the culture. It is for pushing it forward more than a money-making exercise. And it's uh, definitely a lot more involved than most people realize. I think, um, what that says to me is that, uh, I've, I've always felt this kind of in my gut anyway, is that there's more heart in the small local festivals. Uh, we talked about this uh, in the past, about uh, getting involved with volunteering, say with your clan society, um, or getting out to festivals. And we've been asked, you know, what is the best big festival out there? What's a good one to go to? 
And my answer at the time was that you want to try and go to some of the big ones, but you also want to go to the small ones so that you kind of get a more face time with people and, and have a chance to make local connections with people. You know, you don't know what kind of friendships you're going to find. You know what I mean? Um, and and I mentioned I think it's important to consider volunteering at these things. Um, if you're a small vendor like a food truck guy, then yeah, these things can be really good for you. Um, if you're a local business and it's a street fair, which I, I'm guessing the, the Phoenixville one was kind of a street fair vibe, that's all great. But the backbone is people just doing the grunt work behind the scenes, like the at, at Celtic Classic, which is a huge festival near us, which we talk about a lot because um, we're big fans. Um, they have a volunteer corps of kids who go around just picking up trash. You know, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of not uh, romantic and not glamorous work that goes into making this stuff work. The clean um, clan. So. <laughs> They're, they're yeah, dubbed yeah. the Clean Clan. The Clean Clan, right. Yeah, they got the t-shirts and everything, yeah. Even in the big festivals, there are a ton of volunteers. For Celtic Classic, Jane is the one who organizes the festival. She has an assistant under her who helps, you know, coordinate things. But they have an entire board of directors who make sure all the finances are in order, who are all volunteers. And then they have an entire army of volunteers. I mean, like 75 to 100 people who volunteer time slots throughout the three-day weekend to be able to do, and, and before to set things up, because a huge event like that takes three or four days at least ahead of time for all the logistics of putting up the tents and running the electric and all the other stuff. So there's, yeah, even it, small ones, there's more responsibility, like more people wearing multiple hats. I'll agree with you that. And then for the larger right. festivals, right. it's just a lot, it's, it's just bigger in scale. So a lot more people doing specialized jobs, but it's all yep. for the most part volunteers and it's not a, it's not a profit driven exercise. There's money involved. Yes. There's money to be made. Yes. But it's not money for profit. Um, in the example of Celtic Classic, they sell beer, but they're doing that to offset other costs. They're doing that to offset a salary for an individual to run this thing full time and an assistant for that person. So it's not like they're making millions of dollars that they're just swimming in money at the end of the thing. It's they're doing it because they love it and to cover the costs to be able to do it the next year and to keep the whole thing moving forward. Yeah, yeah. I would say it occurs to me that the the, the profit motive is for the artisans who show up, for the small companies like, you know, the people who are selling the Welsh cookies and the people who are making kilts and the, you know, the guy who's selling the, the, the jewelry or the guy who's selling the, uh, you know, the hand carved wooden signs with your family name on them. Um, and I would argue that it's a service to them. We don't think about them as much, but they are another backbone of the community, really. I mean, because everybody wants to have some way of representing their heritage at home or on their person. So they're going to these festivals to shop. So if you go to one, yeah, go to shop because you're supporting people whose business, their entire livelihood is based on being in a van half the year and, and going from festival to festival. And it's a hard way to make a living. I know people who do it. So I think it's, that's a good thing about it. You know, it's, it's hard work for, for those who put it on, but it's also a service to the community in the sense that you're giving an opportunity for people to A, shop and B, find customers, you know, for, for with selling something that they're passionate about. So that's kind of cool. Um, what occurs to me then to get back to the original point of the question was would USA Kilts ever do a festival? I could see us maybe helping support a volunteer group that did one someday. You know, I don't see us being like a driving force behind a a, a festival, like like putting one on in our backyard. <laughs> I don't see that happening. 
I wouldn't want to try to do it again. I wouldn't want to try to recreate the whole thing. It takes, um, logistically, it takes too much of my time and effort to be able to do it and right. run a company full-time simultaneously. Right. Where I would feel more comfortable is in a, in a supporting role, like we try to support Celtic Classic and everything they do. We do our own versions of supporting the culture, propping up the culture, pushing it forward um, through, you know, buying everything from the UK, through shows like this, stuff like that. So we do our own thing. Sure. The festival isn't what we are good at. We would be an ancillary thing. Um, like we had talked about doing a KNC Live from Celtic Classic this past year, which didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, but we could do things as a company to support the festivals and to, you know, in a supporting role more than in a driving force kind of role. And I think that's where we'd be more comfortable. Um, so yeah, it's, it would be, it's fun. I liked doing it, but it's, it's not our destiny. Our destiny lies elsewhere. Yeah. Agreed. I agree. Quite. All right, Mr. Mack, next question. Pretty please. <clears throat> Alrighty, hey, we have Duncan. In your Tartan Creator, which he loves, um, there is a Thank limit you. to seven colors used in one Tartan. Is that a standard for all Tartans or something that we just have locked down? That is actually a very insightful question. I like that one. Mm -hmm. In our Tartan Designer on a website, the we actually allow only seven colors per Tartan. A tartan is defined as more than one color, so two colors minimum, you know, different warp and weft, you know, in stripy patterns going back and forth. Um, most tartans have less than seven. Usually they have six or less colors in the tartan. I'm not sure exactly why, but I know for a fact that they're, the mills, the way that the, the looms work, is that some looms have a maximum color number of six, and certain ones have a maximum color number of seven. I don't know why, I never quite grasped it, but I know that is a thing. So most tartans only have six colors because if it had seven, eight, nine, ten colors, the mills wouldn't be able to weave it um, or it would take specialty kind of looms. So that is why on our tartan designer, we have a limit of seven colors. Um, the mill we use most often for our custom weaves of cloth is House of Edgar. And they're one of the few mills that actually can do seven colors, not just six. The allowable number of colors in the tartan design. I think more than that, you you run the risk of uh, being tempted to make the tartan a little too complicated anyway. Uh, we've talked in the past about how a, uh, a good tartan has some energy in parts of it and then some empty space for your eye to rest. And that contrast is what makes the design good. So I, I shudder to think what would happen if you had like the ability to put in 27 different, different lines. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's definitely a loom technology thing. I don't know anything about it myself, but I know my wife, who's done uh, weaving, um, has talked in the past about different looms, which are like a six harness or a 12 harness. And a 12 harness huck uh, is a very complicated uh, old school kind of loom. And it gives you that many more options for creating stuff because you've got 12 different points of, of lining up the thread. I forgot what the right term is. Um, so I assume that it's probably there's a there's a um, a tipping point where it no longer becomes efficient or or even desirable for a large company weaving things to want to have more than six or seven threads. You know, just how often you're going to need that technology. 
Um, so it's probably, it's a, it's that kind of critical mass kind of a thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, could you make a tartan with a dozen different colors in it and, and use a, do a dozen different threads, uh, in the warp and the weft? Sure. Would you want to? Uh, I don't know. So I think it's, it's, the truth is somewhere around that, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree there. It's, it's almost a two pronged thing. There is. A, a hard boundary set by the looms or warp or whatever, like whatever, whatever the boundary is set bar, by, there's, there's a hard mm -hmm. boundary. And on the other end of it, even if you could, would it make a good looking tartan? Maybe eight colors if you're trying to do like a gradient thing and use like four shades of green yeah. plus, you know, two shades of blue and X and Y and Z. Um, fine. I could potentially see a reason for wanting to try it. Um, but the more colors you get, the more complicated it gets, the the more dog's dinner it can tend to look like. So yeah, I'm kind of, there's a real reason, and then there's an artistic reason. The artistic, I don't even get to the artistic reason because the answer is, you can't. I'm not sure why, but you can't. So we're not gonna tempt you with something you can't ever get woven, yeah, that, basically. That's true too. Right, I mean, like, right. Why let people do, you know, 897 different colors and then they say hey i'd love to have a tartan in my cloth or a cloth in my tartan they're like hey you can't we lied ah yeah sorry ah, on you <laughs> <coughs> sorry um i think it's my turn next then yep. right for the question? okay i'm ready to go here um this was uh this i think we've answered this kind of thing before but uh daniel daniel mcculler was asking us uh what color shoes would you suggest that would be a universal pairing option for whether you're wearing black or brown leathers overall, you know, like your belt, your sporn strap and all that um, are black or brown. Uh, is there a way to have a, one pair of shoes that would work for whatever color combination you felt like putting on that day? Sure. <clears throat> um, black is universal. It's going to work with anything. A lot of people mix black and brown. It's traditional to wear a, a brown sporum with black shoes or whatever, and it's not—it's not a a something you could that cannot be done over in the UK. Here in the US, we tend to match the leathers. Tend to um, where I would go, but you could wear a brown sporum and and black belt and black shoes. Um, where yeah. my personal uh, like you know head twitch kind of thing kicks in is if you're wearing multiple shades of brown. So if you have like a chocolate brown sporin and a light tan belt and a, a, a you know a, a medium tan pair of shoes, that to me starts to look a little too hodgepodgey. Um, but if you're wearing one shade of brown, one shade of black, that's fine. Um, if you're wearing, you know, chestnut shoes and a black sporin, have at it. It's not against the rules as they you know or conventions as it were um, but it's it's one of those things where americans tend to be matchy matchy specifically with leathers you don't have to be in the uk but you still want to you want to look like you you got dressed on purpose you didn't just you know get dressed in the dark yeah i think if it's a if it's a casual outfit for for a festival or going hiking or something who cares but if you're trying to do like a, a smart day wear kind of a thing then yeah, I would probably default to black. I don't think there's not a lot of two-tone black and brown shoe options out there. Um, he mentioned, you know, he was thinking more in terms of uh, uh, boots, not casual shoes like, you know, like, you know, Oxfords or whatever. 
I think you can find some two-tone shoes, but matching browns is a pain. Um, I would default to black simply because you can let it kind of disappear into the background. And then if you're gonna have uh, brown accessories, make sure that you choose one that you want to do the talking. I mean, for me, it's gonna be the Sporin. I think that's an obvious choice. Like today I've got two-tone Sporin on actually. Um, and basically I would, I got a black belt because I don't have another brown belt that's gonna match this particular color brown. I'm gonna let the Sporin do all the talking and let the belt kind of recede. So that's how I would approach it with the shoes and try not to overthink it. Yeah, the our, our Sporin maker has a few different shades of brown. And what we actually did was we approached him and said, look, here's our shoes. This, this is the brand of shoe that we carry in brown. This is our shoe. Um, match this. I don't, you know, you, he had chocolate brown, a light tan, like he had like four different shades of brown and none of them blended well with our shoes. And we only had one option for brown shoe. So, or for Gilly Rope. So we said, look, Greg, match this brown here. And we actually have our brown leather belts and our brown sporins, our, uh, the leather for it, dyed to a specific shade of brown to tone well with the shoes so that all of our browns will match well together. When we get belts from a different company and sporins from this company and shoes from that company in their stock shades, it's, it's too desperate and like it's, it's like chocolate brown to dark chocolate to light tan and it ends up looking like a dog's dinner. I had a discussion with Bill Whelan, who's the MD over at House of Edgar this week. And we talked about uh, the American matchy matchy thing and the Scots traditional you know, viewpoint of it doesn't have to match. <clears throat> and he actually corrected me. He said, that's not really true anymore. He's like, as a traditional long-standing thing, sure. As a current day thing where rental or hire companies over in Scotland that are hiring for weddings or people buying kilts in shops in Glasgow and Edinburgh, wherever, what they are currently buying today are tweeds to match the kilt, sporins to match the belt. Like they're 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 okay. definitely okay. starting to lean today's society more towards matchy-matchy than they would have 30, 40, 100 years ago. So it's an interesting kind of twist on it where Americans, in my memory, have always kind of been matchy-matchy and the at least the younger Scots that are growing up with it, that are getting married in it and that kind of thing, are starting to look more towards the matchy-matchy and less towards the, uh, the hodgepodge. I love this tweed, so I'm going to wear it even though it's you know, brown with my green and black kilt, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a neat evolution, even in Scotland, not away from tradition, but sort of like, you know, a movement of the tradition a little bit. I'd, I'd say that it, it probably is a good thing. Uh, it, it says good things about maybe where the Scottish economy has been, that basically I think the, the old attitude of not worrying about things matching was because you owned one jacket, you owned one kilt, you owned one sporin, and you didn't buy them at the same time. You didn't necessarily get them at the same time. So you just didn't worry about it because you didn't have the option. But the industry has expanded enough and people have the the spare, you know, the spending power more often now, perhaps, um, that they can afford to take their time and say, well, I really want to make this look really dialed in. Um, and they have choices. Um, so that sounds like a very positive thing to me. I mean, if you want to, if you want to ignore it, you can. You could still just say, I don't care. This is my sporn. But 
but it's nice that they have the option. Or they're buying it more intentionally all at the same time because it's not daily yeah. wear, it's something you're wearing for specific occasions. So you know that I'm gonna have one kilt jacket, I'm gonna have one kilt, so I want them to tone well together to match that kind of thing versus I have one kilt and then later on I bought my tweed or I bought my PC for my wedding. And then later on I bought a tweed jacket for other stuff and you kind of piecemealed it versus saying, nope, this is my outfit. I want it to look well put together from day one. So yeah, yeah. Interesting. it's an interesting evolution of the whole thing and kind of changing of the whole thing. I hope that the traditional does not go away and I don't want that to be poo pooed and frowned upon, but I like that it's evolving to be more <clears throat> um, better matching, uh, but more incorporative <laughs> or incorporating more current traditions, current fads for lack of a better term, um, as well as tradition. So I think it's going to yeah. be neat. Yep, that's it. Next question. Um, Kirk Kinnaman asked us, what is the story behind keeping a coin in your sporn, i.e. never having an empty sporn? <clears throat> Kirk, that's a weird one. Um, we, I've heard the same thing, or I can remember hearing the same thing years ago. It's one of those lore, where did it start kind of questions. Is there any actual history to it? I can tell you what I did find out. I took some notes. Basically, um, the, the tradition as uh, guys hear it now is usually that uh, you would have three things in your sporn at all times. <clears throat> um, one would be a shilling, two would be a clean handkerchief, and the third would be a flask of whiskey. And uh, I asked Kirk where he had originally heard the story, and he said that he, had, uh, he couldn't remember exactly where, um, but he did remember hearing that it was considered bad luck to have an empty sporn, and that some sporn makers will actually uh, toss a penny into the sporn after they're done making it before they sell it, just to make sure you never have an empty sporn, which is really cute. Um, it's fun. Uh, the The way he does the the tradition personally was that he has a 1942 Irish penny that he keeps in his Irish sporn, and then he has a, a military challenge coin that he keeps in his army sporn because Kurt is in the army. And then uh, he's gonna look into getting a, a cool Scottish coin to put into one of his Scottish sporns. So that's a modern interpretation of the tradition. The problem I ran into is that I couldn't find any solid roots as to where this comes from. And I do think that modernly some guys are probably conflating the idea with the challenge coin tradition, which is a modern thing, but it's, you know, very popular. Um, and so, because the follow-up is this, that if you don't have those things in your sport and then, and somebody challenges you about it, then, and you fail, you have to buy them a drink. That's totally the challenge coin thing. So I don't think that's an old custom. What I did find is that it's possible that the bit about having a coin in your sporn at all times might possibly, might be rooted in the old uh, Vagrant Act from 1824 in Britain. Only in England and Wales at first, but it did come into Scotland in like the 1870s, 1880s. The idea being that there was a minimum amount of money they expected you to have on your person and if you could prove you had that amount of money on your person, then it made it more difficult for them to charge you with vagrancy. And the amount was basically a shilling sixpence. If you had a shilling sixpence on your person, then that would be one strike in your favor against being charged with vagrancy and being hauled off to the to the prison. So it was a way of making sure you were safe when you're going home from the pub at night, <laughs> from, from the peelers coming and, and grabbing you. Um, the law came into effect initially because after the Napoleonic Wars, 
you had a lot of discharged military personnel who were stuck sleeping on the streets. The law was very vague. They wound up using it to crack down on, on prostitution and uh, peddling merchandise without a license or whatever, you know, all kinds of different things. So people probably took precautions to try and avoid being in, in the category of targets for that law. And that might be where the tradition started. Um, other than that, it's just a it's just a, a quaint custom. I think a lot of cultures will have something about making sure you have some kind of a lucky coin, uh, you know, just sympathetic magic. You know, it's like if you got one coin, hopefully you have more. Uh, but that's all I could find out about it. I think it's fascinating. If anybody out there has any more data, like hard data, uh, where this custom comes from, I think that'd be great. Um, the other two items in the tradition, the flask and the handkerchief, I would assume are uh, probably rooted in Victorian romanticism, like the handkerchief is so you can offer it to a lady if she needs it. Uh, and the flask, of course, would be so that you can always offer a drink to a friend, you know, when you meet somebody who's a friend, you know, a hospitality and, you know, good kinsmanship kind of a thing. Um, so the spirit is really solid. I like where it comes from. I just don't have any other data on it. Not yeah. yet. Frowned upon during COVID, by the way. Don't share flasks. Well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> or even handkerchiefs, for that matter. Especially with people you just meet. <laughs> the... <laughs> right? Right? You go into Wawa, anybody want to drink in my flask? <laughs> <laughs> but I, do, I, like, I like how Kirk is, is, is uh, playing with the tradition because it, how often do these things actually come up in regular day-to-day -day life? But he's, he's finding a way to turn um, this custom Again, I don't know what the province of the custom is, but he's finding a way to make it fun for himself and a conversation starter. And yeah. I think um, being a kilt wearer, it, half the time it's all about breaking the ice and conversation starters. You know, people will have a million questions for you about heritage or culture or blah, blah, blah. And this is just one more thing you can have fun with. So what the hell? Why not do it? I love the idea, yeah. I agree, I love it, and I hate it. Here's why. The, okay. Um, the, the question becomes, is it a real thing or was it made up by some guy who, you know, full of blarney, you know, said it to other people or always said it and passed it down to his grandkids and the other people all kind of, you know, believe it as true and start passing it down as true. And then you end up with something that's complete bunk <clears throat> that people are perpetuating and they're pushing it on. I think these kinds of things are fascinating because um, you could also argue that all culture started that way you know that all culture Fair. since the beginning of humanity was some guy said yeah you should do this because of this and everybody else around was like oh okay okay good idea religious and, and, and stories it, it, it was, all of it yeah yeah and it was popular enough that it stuck so this is how we do things as humans so it's it's fine i get it conversely similar similar paradigm clotter rings where, where I think you yourself have said that yeah. the guy who invented the clotter ring probably never thought about there being a special code with how you wear it, but it did catch on in the Americas and it's now a thing and it's a cool thing. So, you know, just because something starts as off the top of somebody's head is just kind of BSing doesn't mean it can't turn into a really awesome tradition. Yeah, there's a tradition with it, but that what that tradition was not born the same time as the clotter ring itself. Right. Um, and the rest of it came later. So it's mm -hmm. interesting how things evolve like that and acquire new meanings. Um, I guess it's that in-between phase where somebody is is talking pish and you know, it's uh, or you know whatever, um, and yeah. it's it's not quite 
factoid tradition yet, but it's not original story. It's kind of that gray area that we live in with certain things. But it's, but you know, but you can have a lot of fun with this stuff. I mean, um, I would not carry a flask on my kill all the time just because it'd be a pain in the butt. Um, it would take up room that I need for other stuff, frankly. Uh, but the, uh, but uh, yeah, it doesn't mean it's not fun. Hmm? Why carry a flask when you can carry an entire bottle? <laughs> well, yeah, or or take your drinking horn along with you, you know. Exactly. But that it, it my default response is when in doubt, blame the Victorians. Yeah. This is this. <laughs> that's that's it. It's all Sir Walter Scott's fault. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my basic thought on it. If it, like I said, if anybody has any other information on this, um, I'd love to hear it. I think customs like this are awesome, and the roots of them are fascinating. So, agreed. Mr. Mac, hi, welcome. Hey, welcome Mac. back. Thanks for joining us, buddy. So, um, before we get to the next question. People are asking, what tartans is everybody wearing? As usual, keeping us keeping us uh, on point here, Mac. Thank you, Mr. Eric. Which one are you wearing there? I'm I'm being a total shill for my company and my Facebook group. This is the uh, Kilton Culture official Kilton Culture tartan. Very so, lovely tartan. Lovely tartan. It is. I I, so I'm rather fond of it. I'm rather fond of this tartan. I must say. Yep. Mr. Mac, what are you what are you rocking today, Mr. Mac? I didn't go weathered like you guys did, but today I went the uh, red hackle tartan. Ooh, nice. fancy! Nice. I approve. Mm -hmm. I approve. Today I have on the uh, steward of Appen weathered tartan. Um, yeah, my wife is a steward of Appen, and I just really dig on it. Uh, steward of Appen hunting weathered. Excuse me. Uh, I think Mac actually is, as a McMichael, is a steward of mm -hmm. Appen as well, and he has one of these. As, do we buy it at the same time, the cloth, Mac? Yep. Yep. Aww. So Mac and I can be twinsies. Oh, you're tartan twinsies. That's that's adorable. <laughs> or not. Yeah, and that's why I don't have a weathered one today, because I knew that's the one he had. <laughs> I did, Yeah, I was like, I, I, I thought, I, before I put this one on, I was like, oh, crap. Is Rocky wearing the Kilton culture today? I better check. <laughs> One of these days we should we should just do that. We should just do all completely matching outfits. We should all come in and do a show in PCs sometime. We should all come in and do total like black tie or white tie. You know. I'm 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 too sloppy, dude. I, I hate wearing dinner really? jackets the whole time. I get too hot too fast. Um Okay. I'd be I'd be right. nervous for that. Like I, I would have to put the AC down in here to like 55 degrees, then Mac would love it. Then maybe <laughs> then maybe right. I would wear a PC or something like that. But yeah, I get too hot too fast. I, I, I still I still think that someday we should do a virtual burn supper and we should do a virtual St. Andrew's dinner. We should just, just you know, put on the dog and have some haggis and do it upright. I don't disagree just, with that. Just, just for the hell of it. You yeah. Know? That may be a goal for next year. Let's say let, there's too many yeah. uh, St. Andrew's or uh, too many uh, burn suppers. Let's maybe do a St. Andrews dinner. We gotta get the we gotta get the viewers involved. We gotta get people involved in this. That could be fun. And do something that could be fun. Do something crazy. If you all want to be involved in the uh, the St. Andrews mass dinner thing, let us know. Or, or, we'll dress you up as a Jacobite, Rocky, in honor of the anniversary of Culloden. Uh, don't, How'd you don't like we... to wear some 18th century gear? 
I would, nah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, come on, you know you want to. Uh, I think, I think we dress Jason in that and bring him back. All right, no, Mr. I'm Mac. saying it's, it's all of us or none of us. It's all of us or none of us. Wait, 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 I have to do the entire episode with a Tarj. Right on. <laughs> to cover the fact you're not actually wearing a doublet or anything. It's just like, <laughs> this is my, this is my costume. What are you talking about? Exactly. Naked behind the Tarj. No, that's a different <laughs> show. No. No one wants that's to a see different show. with a Tarj. Not even more. That's a different show. <laughs> Mr. Okay, Mac, Mac give us a real question. From this hell, please. <laughs> All right, so we have Jalen asking, do you happen to know any resources where they can find online or maybe down the road, maybe marketing can do something like this, uh, how to wrap an Arisade? It's pretty simple. There, there are multiple ways to do it, and uh, we do have a couple of videos on this um, already on the, on the YouTube channel, I believe. Um, but uh, essentially there's there there's uh yes we will do a full video about it just like at some point when we can fully work without covid restrictions we want to do a proper uh doing a great kilt video and the two of them kind of will go hand in hand in my in my vision at least the um the easiest thing you can do is basically uh fold it in half put the belt through and put the belt on and let the bottom or that the bottom and the top kind of fold down behind you the way some guys wear a great kilt casually these days. Um, or you can bring the one half up over your shoulders and pin it with a brooch, so it's more like a cloak. Um, you can put it up over your head, same effect. There are resources online already. Uh, a couple of people in the SCA have, have done uh, tutorials on it, I believe. So if you if you look up Arisade how-to or how to put on Arisade, um, you'll find some pictorial ideas. It's pretty simple. It's kind of like putting on an apron backwards, is is the is the first way. Um, other ways are very similar to how men put on a great kilt. It's just not quite as voluminous as a great kilt, so you don't have quite the same number of options. But again, you know, wearing it flopped down like kind of like an overskirt, where you can see it gapping in in the front, so your underskirt can show, is one way. Bringing it up over the shoulders is another way. Um, there's a McKeon print, which uh, McKeon prints are not always accurate, but the, the one he did, uh, I forget which clan it was, but he shows a woman wearing an Arisade, and that's actually, yeah, that's pretty much how they wore them. Um, do you have any other thoughts on that? No. Rocky, uh, from your experience? Uh, um, just going into the, it's not quite as voluminous. Um, yeah, a men's great kilt is typically uh, four yards, five yards-ish kind of, of cloth, where a woman's Arisade is three ish yards it's not quite as much two and a half three yards for an average sized woman to a slightly bigger one um so mm -hmm. yeah it just depends on the size of the person and how you're wrapping it with how much cost you need cloth you need right but there's there's basically enough material to basically wear half of it as a kind of a, an overskirt and then the other half with the belt in the middle keeping everything secure bringing up over the shoulders or uh slopping down as an extra layer Yep. It's pretty simple. Um, and we do have a few ladies who are in the Kilts and Culture group uh, on Facebook who have done it. So that's another uh, another place I would pose the question. I think uh, the more people who try it, the better. So let's see if we can get a bunch of ladies out there uh, showing us what they can do. Agreed. Until I can make a video. Until yeah. we can actually make the video. At some point. Uh, the, the number yeah. of videos that we want to make and have on the list to make are... For Far exceed the or far exceed the yeah. uh, amount of time in a day. Um, it's yeah. 
It's backing up. All right, Mr. Eric, next question, pretty please. Was that you me. or was that okay. Mac? No, this is me. Um, uh, Mark Essery asked us for a quick refresher on proper placement of the kill pin. He says he struggles with this one every time he puts one on. So, and I could see that, if, especially if you have more than one pin and they're different sizes, I could see where that might be confusing. So, quick, quick rundown, Rocky. Sure. Um, there, there is no 100%. This is exactly where you put it. Thing. Um, I would say this about the bottom of. Let's go this way. The bottom of the pin, the, the point of the sword, if you will, um, about four or five inches up from the bottom of the kilt, and about two inches in from the fringe is about the bottom of the pin. Um, uh oh. Oh my! How dare you? Oh, Mine's wrong. Er Get I, off. Have, I have a reason though. I Get have a reason off my show, pal. Like <laughs> no, it's there. There's a range. Um, some guys wear it a little bit lower. Some guys wear it a little bit higher. Victorian times, you know, it was up halfway up the kilt. So there's no exactly right location to wear it. It's just kind of where you feel like it, down towards towards the bottom of the apron, towards the fringe side. That's about it. Don't. Don't worry too much about it. Right, which we say a lot. You know, we get accused of saying that too much, but the, the, it's the truth. Um, the uh, Yeah, I th sometimes if you have a square of the tartan that's in about the right place and you like how the pin will look framed in a certain uh, you know piece of the set in the, in the apron, that can be a nice way to go. Um, I actually put this pilt on, this kilt, yeah. Boop. I put this pin on lower than usual because when we were getting ready for the show today, I had it up higher, closer to the Victorian style, and I realized you couldn't even see it at all on camera. So I thought, well, I wanna, I wanna be able to show off the pin while I'm sitting here, so I moved it down some. Uh, so it's a bit of an optical illusion because I happen to be sitting down on a camera. Um, this is actually lower than I would wear this one. I think the size of the, pill, of the pin makes a difference. This is a very large pin, so I think it, aesthetically, it looks more balanced if it's higher up on the apron. Um, if it's a lighter pin, then yeah, I think the, the couple of inches in and like, you know, four or five, even six inches from the bottom is a good rule of thumb. Um, I say pin it and look in the mirror and see if it looks balanced, you know? Um, the only mistake mistake I've seen is where people put it really down, really close to the bottom uh, of the kilt, like right down at the bottom edge. That just looks odd, you know? Um, I also don't really recommend wearing a pin at an angle. Um, I think maybe one or two pin designs out there kind of look cool if you do that. But um, even, if, you know, even if it's like, yeah, I know, I know. And I, I, I try to be gracious with it. Um, <laughs> like I said, you know, so there's, some, there's some funky pins out there and guys are making pins out of stuff which was never meant to be a kill pin and it can look awesome. Somebody on the group recently posted one where they took a this enamel pin of the Mandalorian and were using it as a kill pin. I was like, that's great, you know, that's fun. Um, but uh, I would not have the Mandalorian at the bottom of the kilt apron. That would be dishonorable. You know, that is not the way. You know, it should be higher up. So um, it, the, the lighter the pin is, thinner it is, then the more the rule of thumb applies. I think the thicker the pin is, the heavier it is in design, the higher up you want it. It's just going to look better, more balanced um, with the rest of the stuff going on if you have it a little higher if it's big. And this is a big honking pin. This is one of our, our you know, our Viking pins. And... Uh, it's huge. So you stole my joke. I was gonna say you put the Mandalorian down there, so when you remember to open the kilt, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
All right, Mr. Mack, next question, pretty please. All right, so we have Stray Cat 1674. Um, how do you keep flashes from getting sun bleached? Wow, that's an interesting one. From getting sun bleached. Wow. Hmm. How old are these flashes? Yeah, that's kind of where I'm going. Yeah. Well, um, where did they come from? What's the quality of flashes? What's the material they're made out of? How many times have you washed them? Um, did you put sunblock on them? <laughs> the um, My mom, put sunblock on No. Um, I, if they're that old, that they've been outside for that long, that they are sun bleached, if you fold your kilt hose over to the same spot, no one will know that they're sun bleached because there'll be the same amount of flash showing all the time. And then I would say they're not that expensive. If they look like crap after, you know, X number of years because they've been sun bleached, buy a new set of flashes. Right. Treat yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard I've never heard that before. That's a very interesting question. Um I maybe it's something that uh Piper's have to deal with or something like if like you're out at events a lot i mean if you're doing parades all summer maybe there's something that happens um some bands depending on what their quartermaster's philosophy is will uh choose to invest in different levels of quality for uniform parts so it may be that you don't have the best flashes in the world um and a a nicer pair would probably last you longer i've never heard before of anybody having this this problem before um so yeah, I would just treat yourself to a new pair of flashes, dude. Mr. Mack. Does he has uh, some Stray Cat did respond back. Okay. Um, they live in, in Cali, and things apparently uh, bleach with the sun much faster in He's California. in the desert? Like he's down the... Okay, okay. Um, yeah, again, I would say probably just treat yourself to some some nice new flashes and uh, maybe get make sure they're wool. But uh, yeah, that is a that that's a weird one. But I can see where yeah, desert sun sun will destroy things. I don't know California so much, but I know Arizona. Yeah, like if if you if you leave them in your car, that's that's a death sentence. Are they poly polyester material? Are they wool? Are they cotton? You know what are they made of? And then I would say, jokingly, buy a red sharpie <laughs> and scribble it in. Um, the but that would look horrible. Yes. Um, if you, but if you go to the extreme of, okay, you'd have to re-dye the flashes, then you're into what is your time worth? What is the dye cost you? Do you have the dye? What is, you know, it's all the different factors. Do you want to do a DIY type project? Or is it worth your time and effort to buy a $20, $15 set of flashes to just replace them? So it's, it's, it's cost effective. It, what are you want to spend your time, your effort, your money doing. Do you want a brand new pair for 15, 20 bucks? Or does this pair have sentimental value and you don't care if it takes you 12 hours um, and you know a ton of effort and $50 in all kinds of different dyes to get it just right? Like it's, you do you. <laughs> I think I, I would be concerned if the, if the, if it was like matching tartan flashes and it was tartan wool that was actually bleaching that badly, but I'm gonna guess it's probably cotton. Um, I think cotton is usually the most susceptible to bleaching, um, in my experience at least. 
Um, and, and, and if it, but if it were tartan wool, A, I don't see how you could fix it because it's a tartan. How do you get all those colors fixed? Uh, B, I could see being concerned about it because, you know, tartan flashes can be more expensive than regular flashes. You know what I mean? But I'd add the caveat of, but if you're, if it's tartan flashes, odds are you've been wearing it with the same kilt in the same conditions. So the kilt right. will have faded as much as the flashes. So. You would think, yeah. you would think. Yeah, yeah. It feels like it feels like maybe better better flashes would be the answer. Yep. Or just buy a new pair, treat yourself. You deserve it, stray cat. <laughs> All right, Mr. Eric. Next question, pretty please. All right. Okay. This is a uh, from our perspective is a pretty simple one. Uh, Troy Lada said uh he's, he's i'm one of those guys whose weight fluctuates you know i don't know if he means like yearly or seasonally or whatever um but he says should i measure for a new kilt at my smallest or my biggest waist size now if he's if he's an athlete or something he has like an on and off season i know some guys who are they have that problem like in the winter they put on some pounds and in the summer it comes off again what do you do not only athletes like that eric but a lot of guys who work outside in the summer roofers or somebody who's going to be ex or landscapers somebody who's going to be exposed to hot sun all day heavy right. work they're going to lose weight during the summer in that instance i'd say measure yourself at your skinniest or you know measure if, if you don't if you want to buy it right now and you don't have time six months to wait measure your summer jeans and measure your winter jeans see if you went from a 34 to a 38 and then order your kilt at a 36. Um, kind of shoot the gap on that the other alternative is order for a season if you're going to wear your kilt more in the summer order it for that the other mentality is okay fine order a smaller kilt for the smaller you and then buy a set of kilt extender straps if you don't mind the way they look then wear those with the kilt in the winter months and then shrink back into it in the summer months if you're a younger guy <laughs> Order the bigger kilt. You're not going to lose weight generally over time. You are going to expand a bit in the belly. Um, right. So take age into effect as well, or into account as well. We usually, in the store, we've uh, told people there's usually like a four inch or so variance. Three right? inch or so, yeah. The, yeah, three, yeah, be, between the absolute limit of the holes in a strap at either end. So we try to shoot for the middle when we make a kilt. I don't know how big a variance of weight fluctuation you're talking about. It may be that it's not as bad as you think. That it may be that some months you're, you know, tightening it down, cranking it down to, to the, the, the base hole on the strap. And other months you're using a hole towards the, the tip of the strap um, and you're okay otherwise. Um, so yeah, the amount of weight fluctuation we're talking about is probably the key. Um, any of those options will work depending on uh, how great the fluctuation is, decide which option is the best for you. Um, the, the, the easiest answer in some ways is, yeah, have two kilts. Um, but the I think the extender straps are pretty cheap. So I would I would say go, go for the average or a little below the average and then plan on using extender straps for, you know, that time of the year or whatever it is that you're heavier. Um, remember that the, the straps are going to be hidden. The two waist ones are going to be hidden for the most part if you're wearing a belt or if you're wearing a vest or a waistcoat or a sweater, um, the only one that's gonna show is the one on the hip. And, you know, a lot of people won't, won't notice it, but um, 
yeah, it really depends on what the uh, what the uh, the difference in the measurements are. Um, I would be careful. You you just kind of off the cuff, Rocky said, take your jeans measurements. We are not suggesting you measure by pant size. Correct. I don't. When I say take the jeans measurement, I don't mean like what's on the tag. I mean take a pair of jeans, buckle it, or you know put the put the button through the hole, and then measure the inside circumference. Thank you for pointing that out, Eric. I apologize. Yeah. No problem. Yep. And then Mr. Mac. Mac. All right. So we have. I want to get the. What's one question here? Uh, Raymond asking. He's a little odd proportion. This kind of kind of goes to where you guys just were. He's a little odd proportion. Do I? And he wears his kilt at his natural waist, not his jeans. It's about an inch shorter in the back than the front. Can a kilt be altered to be longer in the back than the front? Raymond, Mr. Sherwood, if I may, I had your yep. question recorded here. <laughs> I say good day, sir. No. Uh, I don't. I don't. <clears throat> can, a, can a kilt be made longer in the back than the front? Um, if it is a solid color or a utility kilt, sure, to some degree, especially if it is like highly custom. Um, for a tartan kilt, it's much, much more difficult because think about this. A, a tartan kilt is a grid, period. Now, the, the, the lines make a grid on the cloth. It is what, Eric? Granular. Granular. Ding, ding, exactly. ding. That was the word for the day. Granular. Ah, Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, so, um, yes, a, a tartan kilt is granular. Therefore, it's going to be noticed back or front if, if it's longer in the back or it's shorter in the front, whatever. Um, some guys will have this issue on occasion, if you, especially if you are a bigger guy and you have a posterior, you have a rear end, you know, let's say your, your belly is 46 and your, your hips are 48, but you're built like kind of two offset tires where your belly sticks out in the front and your rear end sticks out in the back. The travel, the amount of, the, the length of, you know, from the top to the bottom of the cloth. In the front, it's gonna hang straight down. In the back, it has to go down the small of your back, out around the widest part of your rear end, and then down. So the distance in the back is gonna be shorter than the distance that it actually, the material has to travel in the front. It's an issue. It's there, you're, you're dealing with a physics problem. So outside of physically stretching the cloth, which you can't really do. Um, but outside of trying to stretch the cloth, you're not going to be able to get around it. You just have to suck it up and deal with it to a degree. I'm not, that's not meant to sound like a harsh answer. It's just, it is what it is. Most people, they, the, dis the difference in cloth travel um, or, or you know, the bottom of the edge of the kilt from the front to the back is an inch max. It's generally not too big of a deal for most people, um, some people, if you have a real big butt, it could be a little bit more of an issue, but there's not a whole lot to be able to do about it. I'll, I'll, I'll give two, I'll give two other thoughts then. Um, I would rather have the kilt be too long than too short. So if you're getting a new kilt, I would take into account the, it's too short in the back thing and see if you can compensate by getting the kilt made a little longer overall. I'd rather have it hanging down below my knees a bit in the front than having it too high 
in the back because I've, I've seen guys who have this problem um, and I sympathize. So personally, aesthetically, I'd rather do that. The other thought would be as long as it's not for formal wear, maybe consider a great kilt. Because you know, with with a, with a Philomore, you can you can basically do whatever you want. You got plain material to play with. Take some practice. But wearing great kilts casually is a is becoming definitely a thing. So that'd be a way to give yourself a nice elegant tail, as it were. I would give similar advice, but slightly different. Is I would shoot the gap. Um, again, if it's if you're talking an inch and a half difference. Let's say my I'm I'm six foot tall. My length is 24. That hits me. Uh, you know middle of the knee in the front and it's it's back of the knee and or back of the top of the knee in the back i might go 24 and a half so if it's an inch difference inch and a half difference i might go a touch long in the front not too long but a touch long and then it would bring the yeah. back down yeah. a little bit as well i'd kind of i'd split the difference i agree well since raymond felt the need to call in his question live i shall Strike it from the board. Heaven here. forbid someone asks a question and watches the show simultaneously. Yeah, I think it's awesome. Actually, I love it. It's uh, they, they actually give a damn about what we say, which is kind of weird. Um, if only my wife. No. <laughs> Ouch, Coraline, you might want to edit that out. I'm gonna keep this light. Uh, Colby Smith asked us. Um, first, he said, first of all, he says, "I love your videos and your casual and relaxed way of informing all of us." Thank you. Um, his question is. Uh, what are your thoughts on fancy square link sporin chains? Are they acceptable for full dress as well as day wear? Um, I've only ever seen them used for formal occasions, not day wear. Um, but he's basically talking about placketed sporin chains. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would only wear it for fancy. I've seen ones that are the, the saltire flag enameled little plackets. I've seen ones that have thistle. I've seen ones that are like fancy knot work patterns all the way down to links like you'd see in a necklace kind of thing different chain stylings and then the bog standard ones that come with most worns like the flat link chains there's a range of fanciness if you will um the for my money leather straps and the plain chain ones are best for day wear um not to be they can be dressed up but the, the fancier ones, it's tough to dress down. I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it would look like you're, for lack of a better term, it would look like you're trying too hard. Um, it just, it's, it's not quite right. It would be like wearing a pair of dress shoes with a pair of shorts. It's like, they're shoes, yes, they're, they stop your feet from getting cut up on macadam, but it's still not quite, it's, it's just off. Um, yeah. I don't really have anything to add. I think um, they're cool, but I, I tend to find them only, they're, they're billed as something that you wear with a dress worn for part of a formal uh, rig. So I, I would say, eh, I wouldn't do it for day wear. Um, yeah, nothing else to add. Yeah, they were kind of, uh, they were born out of the, the peacock movement, if you will, the, oh, that's your sporn chain, I want to go one up. That's your jacket, I want to go one up. I want to dress a little bit more. I want to be a little bit more special, a little bit different than everybody else. So that's kind of how they came in, um, to the best of my knowledge. So it's one of those where it's, it's, it's a way of ratcheting up 
against, not against, but you know, in comparison to other people that you're at the event with, whether that's, you know, whatever kind of event. So it would kind of be odd to, to wear it with a casual type outfit. In my brain, it, it makes sense with a dress sporn, with a Prince Charlie jacket or an Argyle or something, or, or a Sheriff Mirror or something like that. But when you, when you dress it with a, a, a pole, I'm, when you say casual, I'm thinking like polo shirt at a Highland Games, walking around with a day sporn, it would be too much. It doesn't feel like it fits. Or with a dress sporn at a Highland Games, again, in a polo shirt, Again, I would say that's even the dress boring is too much for those kind of events. It should be day wear, casual, solid leather kind of sporing. Yeah, I would agree. Indeed, quite. Good try, but not quite. Mr. Mack. All right, so we have Dan Brumbach asking, do you have any suggestions for getting wrinkles out of an Inverness rain cape? He's had it hanging for months and it's still super wrinkled. What's the material? Dan is a friend of ours, or a friend of mine anyway. He's local-ish. He has a rain cape for pikers. So okay. it's not wool. I, I know what he's yeah, talking yeah, about. It's, it's I think the plastic. It's, yeah. Yes, okay, exactly. Okay. It's probably a band spec cape made by Mr. Anthony. Um, that is a plas breathable, plasticky kind of blend. Um, don't iron it. <laughs> you will absolutely melt it. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if there is a. Yeah, it's take better care of your stuff, Dan. Um, would, would steam do anything? I don't think so. Um, maybe what I would, the closest I would come to to that is to say um, if if there are pronounced wrinkles in a particular section. Maybe put it between two books or something that's like heavy that's going to put pressure on it over an extended period of time and let it sit for a while. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you get wrinkles out of plastic. We don't. We don't deal with a lot of plastic that's not ironable. So, I don't know. heat. Buy another one, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd. Uh... I, I put some put some weights on the bottom of it and hang it up in the sun in the summer so it just kind of the heat kind of like allows it to like relax yeah yeah with some yeah. Pr you know the, the the pressure of the weight on it you know what i mean that sounds goofy but i don't know i'm imagining it like yeah. a tent like dealing with a tent you know but uh yeah fair point or a tarp. Uh, lay it, or forget even forget even doing that lay it out in the sun yeah so that's that not, it's i don't in, know it might Relax it, maybe. Yeah, it, I don't know. I don't think it would like not like sun bleach it. Um, do maybe on a on a hot day that's overcast, so it, you don't get the you know sun bleaching on the material. Um, but something where you can effectively bake the fabric to make it kind of you know relax again. But hey, I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I'm not comfortable giving a firm answer on it because we don't deal with plastic too much. Mm -hmm. I will. I will say. I will say that um, I admire the fact that you're concerned about it. However, I doubt that most people who see you on a performance occasion when you're using it are that worried about it. Um, from from a standpoint of looking professional, your heart's in the right place. But if it's raining hard enough that you and the rest of the band are wearing the capes, the people who are paying attention to the music 
and they're looking at your faces and the pipes and stuff, they're not gonna care about the, the capes that much. If it's competition, if he's being judged on, you know, decorum, then uh, I'm not sure. Are you allowed to even wear them for a competition? Yeah, if it's raining. Some people take more care of their stuff or hang things up. Other guys just kind of jam it in a ball. This is Dan. It's not Lucas we're talking about. I'm sure he's fine. That's true. His kilts have never seen an iron after day one. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's my turn, right? Okay. Yep. Yes? Okay. Will O'Hare. Konnichiwa, Will. Okinki desu ka. Said... Uh, he, this is a discussion topic that he was suggesting was, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, would it make sense instead of talking about kilt outfits as casual or semi-formal or formal to describe the styles in terms of more a context or a, a, an aesthetic? So for instance, an athletic kilt out, outfit, a pub crawling outfit, a Victorian Edwardian gentleman outfit, a J Jacobite or Highlander outfit, etc., etc. Um, and in that case, um, how would you how would you differentiate between those styles and how, what would we recommend for crafting styles like that? How would you proceed if you wanted to use that as a kind of a, a starting point? Um, yeah, that's basically... Um, it, it makes sense and it doesn't make sense simultaneously. Um, you're potentially opening up too many options um, and too many options of event types and potentially too many options of things within the events so casual you know casual can mean you know in a range of things um a pub outfit do you go to the pub in a polo do you go to the pub after work in a dress shirt and a vest do you go to the pub in a t-shirt and a pair of ripped jeans or shorts or whatever um do you wear sandals or do you wear you know wingtips it, it's it's different aesthetics depending on your particular taste so to some degree it makes sense, but it's it all falls down to personal preference based on the event. Um, there's also a matter of the climate. Are you in the middle of winter or are you in the desert? What's your climate? That's gonna dictate the type of clothes, the type of accessories, the other type of things that you would wear with it. Eric? I think that makes sense from a pragmatic standpoint. Um, however, I, I would say that uh... Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, uh, and we're all gonna draw inspiration from different places. So yes, if you think about the kinds of places you're gonna go in the kilt or uh, want ideas of how you're going to wear a kilt, uh, go for the visual. And I'm dovetailing this with a question Will had asked us some time ago, which I wanted to get to, which was, um, what did we think about inspiration and resources for doing a pre-modern look, particularly a Victorian look? And uh, visual references are going to be your guide. If you are an athlete, say, let's start with that one, and you're gonna be planning on going to Highland Athletics, you're gonna look at what other Highland athletes are wearing and probably imitate what they're doing. In that case, very much lean towards the practical uh, because it's a rough and tumble activity in a rough and tumble environment. Um, going to a pub, you're gonna look at uh, images, hopefully, of guys who are at a pub or at a party and follow suit. Um, visual searches online in this day and age can really, really help you hone in what you want to do for a look. Uh, the devil is in the details as always, so it's going to be the choice of accessories that, that are going to um, dictate 
how you wind up presenting once you put it all together. So uh, rule of thumb advice would be keep it simple. You know, a simple sporin can wind up uh, serving for a more historically inspired look a lot of the time, as well as a, he looks nice, he's going to the pub with his friends kind of a look. We, we often say that a kilt itself is the most flexible garment in the world. You can wear one kilt going to, you know, going to a festival, and then that, that night you could go to a black tie affair with the exact same kilt, potentially. Um, just please have a shower in between. The, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think sometimes what people's inspiration comes from can be very important for how they'd make their choices for uh, getting started, number one, and number two, and probably more importantly, when you start collecting. After you get your basic outfit together, like, I need a kilt, I need a sporin, I need a pair of hose, you know, those basics will get you through a number of different settings. But once you start collecting gear, you want to look more at visual sources of the stuff that inspires you to make your choices. Um, Will had mentioned uh, in his previous question using things like McKeon prints for trying to craft a 19th century kind of aesthetic. And my basic response in my head at the time was, um, they're great, but it's an artistic interpretation. So I would say go with photography first and foremost above all. Although even then you do have to be cautious because there's a difference between photography that was of uh, someone like John Brown, you know, and there's an actual, honestly goodness, you know, work, working today as a Highlander, professional Highlander, if that makes any sense. Um, a person who actually lives it versus someone who went to Scotland on vacation and decided to get their picture taken in a photography studio in Edinburgh with all the props provided by the studio, which was a very common thing in the 19th century. Um, and sometimes it can be hard to spot the, the, the details as like, wait a minute, is that really his sporn or is that something that the photographer gave him for this look? So take anything you see with a grain of salt. Um, but, but yeah, look for visual representations online. Use Pinterest for crying out loud. Um, there's lots of pictures of guys in kilts on Pinterest, and uh, there, there's all manner of different styles you can you can do based on all kinds of different ins inspiration. Um, I obviously lean more towards the historical stuff, you know, when I'm not super cash like this. Um, if you keep it simple, you'll have more flexibility. Uh, if you look at what the guy from the 1920s is wearing for his sporin, you can match that to the kind of sporin you might want for getting a similar kind of look. To your point about historical photographs, the point I love to make is just because there is an example photograph from a hundred years ago or whatever, 150 years ago, doesn't, well, hundred years ago, um, does not mean that it is widely accepted or readily done or, or widely done. If you took the photo of Richard Branson wearing his kilt backwards and you could make an argument for a hundred years from now, look, Rich guys back in the early 2000s wore their kilts backwards. Here's my photographic evidence. It's not true. It's he was one guy, did an idiot move, looked dumb, happened to have it caught on film, boom, it's now a thing. It's the same kind of thing may have been true 100 years ago. There was idiots back then, same way there's idiots now. Um, so don't just accept everything blanket as fact because there's an old-timey photograph. Um, the other thing I would point out is, yes, form follows function. It's, you want to, there, the kilt has traditions, has conventions, has things that you wear 
in a certain way for the most part, but you can make it your own. That's the beauty of this. It doesn't have to be just old guy stuffy and it doesn't have to be just, you know, super casual. You make it your own. If you love wearing polo shirts, great, wear a polo shirt. If you want to wear a, a button-down shirt or a sweater or a t-shirt or a Prince or a tweed jacket, great, make it your own. Take your existing Saxon wear personality, the stuff that you wear outside of Highland wear and incorporate that same look, the same vibe, the same thing into your Highland wear. It doesn't have to conform to one look or another, like it doesn't have to conform. You can do what you want within it, within reason, or incorporate your personality within your outfit. Does that make sense? I, yeah, yeah. I think um, you could also take it the opposite direction that basically I dress like this all the time. I want to be, I want to live my fantasy. You know, I want to be something special when I put on a kilt. I want to be outside my norm when I put on the kilt. So the opposite can be true. Um, I think that's probably where some guys get into the more historical styles or the more, you know, we're seeing a, an increase in interest in uh, more exotic jacket and doublet types um, because people want something that's out of the ordinary. You know, we're, we're, we're tired of the mundane. You know, that's partly why we get into this in the first place. I think that Will's methodology or, or thought is especially useful for communicating with a kilt seller if you have the opportunity to work with one um, with uh, better communication, like in person, or writing to them directly because you can say, look, this is what I really want to look like. You know, what I really love is session music and Irish pub stuff. And I want to have that feeling like I just walked off the estate and walked into the village pub, you know, after a day up in the hills, you know, so I'm, and, and they can say, okay, what you're going to look for then is a tweed, probably like this, possibly a weather tartan, yada, yada, yada. And they can help lead you. Um, so I think these are all clues. These are all, um, What's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're metaphoric. Yes. Let me let me help you out here. I, th I know exactly where you're going. Um, and to my to the point that I'm trying to make, you don't want the company. You are an individual. Period. You should be treated like an individual. Period. This is your style. It's not my style that I'm forcing on you. It should be your style. So to take a one size fits most kind of mentality and shove it down everyone's throats is kind of wrong. Some people want that to happen because they don't know what they're doing, but you don't want the tail to wag the dog. You as the customer should come with an expectation or some thought of how you want to wear it, what you want to do, and then the company should meet you halfway and help guide you to make sure you're getting the look you want. Not, here's here is your outfit, you wear this jacket, you wear this sporn, you wear these hose, this is your tartan, these are your, boom, done, get out the door. It's, it has to be a marriage of your ideas, your concept, your reality, and they need to help you get there. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, okay. yeah, I mean, not every guy is gonna have the opportunity to have that level of interaction with who they're buying from. Um, so I would say that lacking that experience, I mean, we're used to trying to offer that here, but um, if somebody's out, in Addis Ababa and they have to do all their shopping online, it may be more difficult. So I would say the visual examples are, are still useful. Um, I think the trick would be to look for more than one. Find, you know, if, if the if the image in your head is, I want to look like 1920s uh, guy going to, you know, a Highland Games. Okay, then do, do some visual research and come up with the average. It's like, oh, this guy's got a really funky sporn. Is that what they wore back then? 
okay, but this guy has a really ordinary sworn. Oh, that reminds me of the one that Prince Charles wears even today. Hmm, maybe I need something that's kind of in the middle. Or maybe I need to go more towards what Prince Charles is wearing. Find more than one example. Do not hook your look that you want on one person. Um, you know, don't don't go thinking, okay, it's Jamie Frazier and just Jamie Frazier. That's exactly what I want. Or, you know, or, or it's, you know, Vin Diesel and his leather kilt. That's exactly what I want. Look at averages. Look at what different people do in different contexts. There's so much visual information out there. Um, yeah, the, the, the terms are the terms are very useful. I think, you know, I want an athletic look. I'm going to be, I want a pub look. I want a historic look at yada, yada, yada. Um, it, we, we tell people to do homework. It's, yeah, this is a major part of what it means to do your homework is to look at visual examples. Yep, exactly. And, and figure I'll say, out I'll what say, you I'll say the Facebook good. groups are, the Facebook groups are great for that. Yeah, and so. figure out what you think looks good. What, and more importantly, what you think doesn't look good and then steer your way away from that a little bit and right. it doesn't matter where you shop whether it's with usa kilts or whether it's with another company make sure they are helping you reach your goal because you don't want to spend five hundred a thousand two thousand dollars on an outfit that you don't like the end result of so make sure that they care about how you look almost as much as you do so Ask questions and make them help you. That's why they're there. That's why they should be there. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Pretty much. Very good. Mr. Mac, we'll do one more question from you, pretty please. All right. So, this one just came in, but I think this is a very uh, question that it's, will fit a lot of things that a lot of guys have other questions about. Um, Kevin just put, what are the signs of an ill-fitting kilt? Too long, too short, too tight, too loose. How, how can you tell what you got is fitting you right? Mm. It, it depends on... An ill-fitting kilt can be ill-fitting for multiple reasons. Um, you can have the waist is fine, but the hips are too small. If the hips are too small, it's going to... Either the kilt pleats are going to go to the side like this, like an angle, or they're going to they're gonna rip... Uh, the bottom of the felt is going to rip up when you sit down. Um, you can have a kilt which the hips are too big, in which case the hip, you know, the waist is going to fit fine, but the hips are going to kind of be like stage curtainy across the back where it's too big and it's just kind of like, ugh, it just kind of sits there. Um, you can have a kilt that is too short. You can have a kilt that's too long. Eric, what other thoughts do you have for ill-fitting kilt? Unfortunately, the best way to tell whether it's ill-fitting or not is to wear it for an extended period of time. Uh, or at least wear it more than once. Now, if you're concerned because you've purchased something and you just arrived in the mail and you just feel like something's off, trust your instinct, first of all. Um, if you try it on for the first time in the mirror and you're like, this doesn't seem right. Um, if you bought it from a reputable source and not you know, off of Amazon or something, no offense, Amazon, no offense, um, then you, you should be able to call up and say, look, I feel like something's wrong here. Um, and they will walk you through, okay, check if, see if this strap is tight enough or if it could go tighter. Try loosening the hip strap. What does it look like at this? Send me some photos. Um, but some of these things you will not discover until you've worn it one or two times. If you're a brand new kilt wearer, it may be that you think the kilt is too long, but it's actually that you're wearing it too low because you're not used to having it up, you know, above the navel. Um, it could be that, you know, something about the measurements was off, but you don't notice until you're walking around the second time you wear it and it starts to slide down. 
You know what I mean? Uh, or if it's too short, maybe it's you're wearing it too high or something like that. Um, or did you take the measurements incorrectly? Right. There, there's, yeah, I tried, th- tried to apply that. That's a possibility also. But. This question could go a hundred different ways. Um, to your point about the Amazon thing, um, did they order a custom kilt made to their own measurements or was it an off-the-peg fit? Did they measure properly? Did they verify that the tape measure was accurate versus it was stretched and therefore a 34 really is a 36 and it doesn't fit quite right? Um, did they measure from you know the jeans waist to the bottom versus the true waist to the bottom? Then when they wear the kilt up higher, it doesn't fit quite right. Did the company account for a rise when they didn't ask for a rise? Like there's a hundred different ways to see if it, it to, to, that a kilt could not fit right. Um, ultimately it boils down to, does it feel like it was made for you? Right. And does it sit right? If it's not sitting right and it, it feel, it, or it's, it's pulling weird or there's something wrong, then there's <laughs> hundreds of different factors that could go into, was it made properly? Did you make a mistake? Did the company make a mistake? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I think how it feels is, is important. That's kind of what I was getting at that it, it, in some ways, you can't have a really good judgment in unless you've worn it a couple of times or worn it for an extended period of time. Because being in motion, these things will these things will show up more more readily. Like when you're walking, you'll be able to tell that it's pulling or it's sliding or what have you. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, generally, I would say visually, if you're an average size torso, then like the the apron should not have show puckering or pulls as the as the apron's going across your the front of you. Um, similarly, the pleats should look like they're hanging in a, in a straight, you know, trapezoidal way and not splaying too much or something like that. Everybody is different, so your mileage may vary. But that's that's those are my first visual clues I'd look for. Is like, does the apron look weird when you look in the mirror, or does it look smooth? Yeah, there are literally hundreds of ways it could be ill-fitting. Um, the one that we actually dealt with recently was talking to a gent and. Uh, he was. He said the kilt was too, it was too loose. It was falling off of him, and it, he did the measurements originally. Um, and when it's a real, real big dude, uh, the question, like you get into weird questions when you're not meeting the customer of, well, how if you're like a 50, 56 inch waist, are you a fluffy big guy where you're you know kind of marshmallowy where your 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 body moves in and out, or are you like firm belly that like it's never going to move at all you're just a big dude like that you know you have to cinch the the straps down a little bit tighter if your body you know moves more versus if you're a firm hard big dude it's yeah there there are so many factors um in the thing so it's always best to physically go to a kilt maker when you can to be measured and that kind of thing therefore you can uh, you know, make sure it's going to be done properly, but it's, there are, there are almost innumerable factors. So what, what would Mac have to say? Basically what, a lot of the things that we see that we have to move, uh, in shop is all measurement based. It's all on how you take the measurements. So it's understanding the initial steps of, of how that company requires those measurements. And then checking your measuring tape, knowing that that is accurate and, and going from there. It's just, that's the base, I think, of where a lot of our 
a lot of things we have to move, a lot of the alterations we do is all based on that. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Measure twice, cut once, as the saying goes. If you <laughs> measure have, twice, if you have, buy once. <laughs> yeah. If you seriously, if you have any, and if you have any any shadow of a doubt about your measurements, contact your kilt maker um, and have them help double check you. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Or or if you bought online and they have a return policy, don't be shy about using it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Question of the day. Hmm. Do you drink mead? What type of mead is your favorite mead? Do you drink mead from a drinking horn or from a normal glass? Um, let us know in the comments. Plug your favorite meadery. Plug your favorite yes. mead maker. If it's a local dude, plug them too. So, tell us about your mead. Until next time, boys and girls. Slajava. Skull. Thanks for joining us, guys. Our podcast theme song is Gold and Guns by the Kilmaine Saints. If you have a question for us, you can ask it during our YouTube live stream the first Friday of every month at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to get social with other kilt enthusiasts, go check out the Kilts and Culture group over on Facebook. You can also find USA Kilts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or over at our website, usakilts.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, Slanjava.